You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. I get to talk about my new favorite subject today. Welcome back to Native Plants Healthy Planet presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic. And uh, even though we've had a lot of success with our, our current Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast, we decided to rebrand it. And now it's going to be Philly Cheesesteaks Unhealthy Arteries. Because <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's all Fran's been that's, talking about lately. That, <laughs> that is my new favorite topic. You know, I've been on like these huge cheesesteak pilgrimages, um, mainly because my youngest son, who's you know, I, I say young, and it sounds like a kid, but he's seventeen. He just discovered cheesesteaks. Like, Which I don't know how you can do that I, around I, here. I, I don't know either. He was just totally against it. He had tried one when he was a kid and wouldn't try it again. So I, we finally got him to try one, and he fell in love. So all these years that we had gone to all these places to have cheesesteaks, we're we're doing it all over. So it's mm. it's me, my two boys, my fiance, and her son. And we're starting all over again. So that's that's been our our like that hiking and cheesesteaks has, yeah. has been yeah. <laughs> has been our completely our negates the hike. I, exactly. <laughs> but going after. I I will say this though, if if you live in the Philadelphia area or surrounding areas, I will take a loaded roasted pork sandwich from Nick's over cheesesteak any day, any day. Like you put every cheesesteak, all the t- put the top ten and put it to next roasted pork. I'm going with the roasted pork. Yeah, and Look. and we always have internal arguments here at the nursery about oh, this is our f- top ten list of favorite cheesesteak places, and we never really agree. Eh, there'll be some agreements, but there's a lot of disagreements too. But one thing I do agree with you, Fran, is that roast pork sandwich is phenomenal. That's like the real Philadelphia right. sandwich. John, are you a are you a meat eater? Absolutely. All right. So I love it. Now you're more North Jersey, correct? Yeah. All right. I'm, uh, I'm up in uh, Warren, Sussex County. Area. All right. So are you are you a cheesesteak fan? I love cheesesteaks. All right. All right. Do you so have? We, do you have? Well, a my question is though. Well, I was going to say to you guys, since you're down there. I mean, because I know I, I actually caught flack for this being in the Philadelphia area, and I ordered raw, which was not a good situation. Apparently, you suppose. <laughs> You're supposed to ask for Velveeta? All right. Like cheese whiz or some no, weird listen. bizarro cheese thing on it? I, I, yeah. I am totally against the cheese whiz. I'm not cheese whiz. That's yeah. a, a big thing is the whiz wit. The whiz but wit, yeah. No, I think Fran and I, this is another place we agree is we both go provolone. We go sharp provolone yeah. on ours. That's what I did. I thought I was doing that right, but I literally got... No, that's, I, that's I, an insider. Flag. I got stairs. I yeah. had the whole thing. It's an insider... Yeah. Insider trick is the provolone. Yeah, if, if you're not getting provolone, you're getting the whiz. Yeah. Listen, you're not from the area. If you're getting cheese whiz on a cheesesteak, that's like wearing yeah. jeans to the prom. You're not. You're totally. <laughs> <laughs> you're totally missing, missing the point. But we, you know, if if you've never had the Knicks, and uh, yeah. there's one by us in New Jersey, the originals in Mount E from New Jersey, but. There's one in the uh, Reading Terminal Market in Philly. There's actually a couple now, but oh, yeah. they're they're roasted pork loaded with with sweet roasted oh. peppers and sharp provolone. Yeah, that's not sweet. Yeah, we yeah. Ha- all right. You know what? When we when we get past this uh, quarantine and we can start having guests in, when you're here, yeah. we will treat you with 
a roast yeah. pork loaded. <laughs> yeah. We'll get. I'll run for yeah. lunch and we'll get it. We'll we'll chow out and then it won't be much of a no, conversation because no. we'll all just be sitting around. But anyway, I I could talk about cheesesteaks all day long. But today I would I would actually really like my talk about my new favorite subject, which are birds. Yeah, and cool. what a coincidence. We, we are going to talk about birds today, right. and uh, really just right. one bird in particular. And um, John, I'm actually going to let you introduce the topic, because uh, well, I guess I'll give a little bit of background. When I was a kid, uh, we had a little patch of woods behind our house, and you'd always hear this one little call, and I remember learning when I was really young, that was a bobwhite quail. Yeah. And then as I grew up, it faded away, but I didn't even notice until I was at a, a meeting and there's a, I don't even remember the, who it was presenting, but they were saying how the Bob Whites had really kind of, the populations had shrunk and, and almost, um, I don't want to say gone extinct, but they've disappeared from not just our area, but a lot of the, the U.S. And then yeah. it kind of clicked. I'm like, I used to hear them all the time and I don't even know the last time I heard them. And um, yeah. It's and scary. that's what you guys are doing something about. So, John, why don't you, before we get too far into things, why don't you tell everyone who you are, who you're with, and and kind of how you got sure. into what you're doing. Okay, cool. Yeah, so hey, guys, um, in the uh, podcast world there, I'm uh, John Park. I'm the Stewardship Project Director with New Jersey Audubon. Uh, if you don't know who New Jersey Audubon is, uh, we are a independent Audubon. We are the oldest conservation uh, organization in the state. We've been around since 1897. Uh, we helped start National with a bunch of other independents, but like those same uh, independents, we all uh, left National and decided to focus on our states. Um, and more or less, New Jersey Audubon is not just about the birds. Um, we do a lot of uh, work uh, basically with, uh, with habitats and, you know, all the wildlife that is in there especially threatened endangered species and um we're talking about that bob white um yeah the bob white uh oh, tom friend you guys grew up in south jersey right i i actually grew up in in the philly suburbs i i've philly never well, okay. i have never seen or heard oh, a wow. bob bob white quail i i, like I tom said he's, he was down in south jersey right so i mean they were all over the place mm -hmm. yeah yeah. So yeah, back in the day, like I remember, like I'm I'm a city boy, and um, my grandparents though had moved down to the Pine Barrens um, okay. to retire down there in the uh, in the 70s. So I remember going down to the Pine Barrens, and yeah, like Tom said, like that's that's where I first heard my first heard and saw my first Bob White um, in the in that region, and and uh, it's 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 the greatest sound in the world. Um, and it's so it's such an iconic thing too, right? Uh, mm -hmm. That Bob White, that 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 whistle, and um, and it that bird, that that bird kind of it's got such appeal to so many different people, uh, farmers, birders, just the casual person in the back, like kind of what Tom was saying. You're growing up and you hear that call out there in the woods or out in the field, it just made you feel good. And then over time. Yeah, people just kind of, it just dropped off and no one even noticed. And now we're at a point now where the bird itself, not just in Jersey, in Jersey it's completely functionally extinct. Wow. Um, meaning it's it's just, it's gone. And, and the problem is that whatever remnants were left over the last couple of years, 
nobody is sure now if they're even wild birds because so many uh, hunting clubs and, and even the state were stocking birds for a while that in the areas that they do pop up, it's pretty much assumed that they are ones that are being stocked on a regular basis. So they're not even the wild species. Mm-hmm. So like I said, Jersey's functionally extinct. And then when you look across the bird's range, everywhere it's kind of tanked. In fact, uh, in, Nor- in North America, it's uh, like an 85% drop in um you know in in the uh, in the birds population wow. across wow. the range i mean that's crazy that's like one of the worst uh declines of any bird in north america wow and uh it's just not around anymore now the thing was so common it was everywhere no and, and uh so now we're trying to we're trying to do some work to bring help bring them back to new jersey and we're working with a lot of partners in other places across the U.S. to, to do the same uh, in their states. All right. Now, I, I want to talk about this, and we're going to delve into this, but before sure. we do that, first I want to say thank you for you, – you sent my fiancé a birding package when I announced on the podcast that, that we were officially into birding, and I want to thank you yeah. for that. It, That's cool. It has gone – it has gotten a ton of use, and that, awesome. that made her day, and that's really fueled <laughs> – are birding, you know, and for what I do, it's I'm, I'm kind of surprised that um, it, we didn't do this sooner. So I was curious, kind of, how did you get your first birding bug? Like, how did how did you end up at oh, New okay. Jersey Audubon? Well, uh, like I said, since I was a city boy, uh, my wildlife experiences were few and far between. Um, I grew up in Jersey City, okay, so it was. Um, you know, there was hard, it was, there was not a whole heck of a lot to look at back then, but my dad, uh, was a big wildlife enthusiast and he would take me, uh, hunting and fishing and hiking when I was really young, getting out to the woods. And like I said, going to see my grandparents down in the pine barrens. And it was through those experiences that I got excited about wildlife and that's all I wanted to be around and look for and, and that kind of thing. And, uh, took that into college uh got a degree um in environmental studies and always wanted to uh work with uh, with wildlife and did consulting for a bunch of years and eventually was volunteering at new jersey Audubon. and um through the connections there and the work that i was doing uh you know parlayed it into a full-time job where now it's it's like the greatest thing that I've ever, it's, it's, it's so happy to wake up in the morning and know like you want to go to work and uh, like, I can't wait to get to work because it's, uh, it's, it's amazing. The things I see, the people I meet, the projects we work on. And you get to make a difference. really enlightening. You get to make a difference, which yeah, not everyone to gets to do really. in their life. So it's, yep. th- but that's, that's, that's great. You know, it's funny because we hear so many people saying, as a kid, they started off with this as their natural surroundings. But growing up in the city, I can totally – for me, growing up in the suburbs, Levittown was pretty much a city. Um, yeah. You know, the first time I saw a pheasant, I was beside myself. Yeah. I, and I, I, don't, I think since that time in, in the 80s, I've maybe only seen pheasants two more times in my life. You know, wow. speaking of – of a bird you don't see see much anymore. You know, I saw one up in near the Hamptons about two mm-hmm. years ago, and that's pretty much and one around the corner for me. But th- it was it was released. It was there's a yeah. there's a hunt club around the corner for me, so they were they do some quail and some pheasant. But um, 
Now, through this project, uh, and we want to mention this, it's it's the Working Lands for Wildlife Partnership. And for our listeners yes. that don't know what that organization is, can you can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So, so Working Lands for Wildlife is, is really an initiative that the USDA and the Natural Resource Conservation Service, right, NRCS, okay. Okay. Um, they're uh, they're an agency, federal agency. Uh, that was um, uh, created back in the back in the Dust Bowl era. Um, <laughs> yeah, seriously, I mean, you, you remember, you know, that whole thing where yeah. actually it was a soil conservation service back then. Okay, but it's evolved, and now they not not only do they do soil and uh, water and um, you know uh, you know fixing erosion issues and soil health and all that, they do wildlife as well. And as part of that program, um, it's a funding opportunity, and how it works is that uh, the funding programs focus these particular ones, the working lands for wildlife focuses on combating, you know, the decline of wildlife species whose decline we believe can be reversed. Okay. All right. So things that are, they haven't winked out yet. They're not on the verge of winking out. There's enough time that with the, with the right practices and the right technical uh, assistance and putting them and implement implementing those practices yeah there's a possibility that you can actually save these species in new jersey there's four species that um that we concentrate oh that we concentrate on okay for that particular program golden wing golden winged warbler which i've okay. never seen that's one that i've never seen ah, I, I got this i got to see the second one of my life this year on a project we did uh, up in sparta mountain and um we, where we did forest cuts and and it Took six years, but we finally got our first one in the cut this year, so we're very excited. I, so, golden wing warbler, okay, American black duck. Believe it or not, something you think mm. is so super common and it's not anymore. Wow! And bog turtle, okay. and then the last one is northern bobwhite quail. And we're going to focus on that one today. That's we're going to focus on the quail one today. Yes. So you had mentioned that um, the decline has been eighty-five percent. I guess yeah. is that I originally thought that was maybe over the last 50 years is it really more front end loaded like has it really been over the last 10 years no nah, it's been it's not nah, it's been over the last 50 years I mean it does to, to get that to get that number and and it's and you can see it um, when you start looking at the the trends in farming development that's happened it, it all comes back to the habitat loss okay. and so over that time as things got more, uh, mechanized in farming when every inch of the the field is now being utilized as opposed to when we all were growing up and you know the, the farmers would leave those little weed spots and yeah. you know tractor turnarounds and all that kind of stuff in weeds it's 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 in production and the habitat's gone and then when you think about what happened especially in new jersey right with the development booms that happened throughout the you know the 80s and 90s and 2000s i mean we've lost a lot of ground and um, it's just it's not conducive anymore to uh, to not just Bob White, but a whole suite of species that need that, you know, early successional young forest weedy patches. Well, that's uh, what I was just going to ask. What is what is the ideal habitat uh, for quail? What what do they prefer? Where do they breed and what do they need to exist? Yeah. So so for quail, um, you know, they need a really diverse mix of vegetation, you know, like um they, they they have it. We there's actually uh, data out there that when you try to do ha habitat management, 
they asked to look at a spot and try to think of it as uh, one-third forbs and legumes, one-third grasses, and one-third uh, low woody species. Okay. You know, and then the other thing is, so when you think about what that looks like, think about like a pine, an open pine savanna, mm-hmm. right, or, uh, you know, grassland kind of area. Um, but the key to that whole thing, too, is it, they also need a bit of bare ground. Okay. And when you think about that, um, why would you need that? It comes down to the chicks and how they get around and move and where, where the, uh, the adults are able to nest. So, um, so you think about if you put all that together, what do you wind up with? It's like those shrubby areas, you know, greenbrier, blackberry, plum thickets, oak scrub, uh, again, the, uh, the pine savanna kind of look. It's, it's those kind of things where they can find forage, escape cover, and able to rear the chicks. And and those those conditions that you just named or mentioned don't really exist too much. It's like when I do see thickets, it's yeah. invasive. It's not. Yeah. It's not um, the species that you mentioned. It's it's invasive species. So it's I can see how that habitat has kind of disappeared and lost a habitat. And it, you can go through any any episode of our podcast and that's <laughs> that's that yeah, it always comes back to the same thing right we lost a ton <laughs> of habitat here in jersey and now we're trying to make up for it and uh between the development and then you know all the other things that have happened over the years with you know climate change issues the pests that come in and change up the, the structure the uh, uh suppression of fires you know the mitigation of beaver dams all the things that were disturbance related and all which created those habitat types, they're all, they've been all taken out of the system or gone. Yeah. And you lose all this amazing cover, and it translates down to all these little things that you took for granted, like I'm sure on the other podcasts, right, with the, the loss of milkweed and the loss of those little weedy areas we were talking about. And it, that was the key to, all, to a lot of the food chain. It was the key to a lot of these species even surviving. And, um, that's where we're at right now. I think I, I forget what the number is exactly, but the last time I looked in New Jersey, the threatened endangered species that were out there, it was something like forty-one or forty-five percent of the of the animals that were listed were all species that needed some kind of early successional young forest habitat mm-hmm. because that, like you said, friend, it, it's not there anymore. No, it's it's just it's allowed to grow up or allowed, but it's never being replaced. And when you take out those, um, you know, those disturbance factors, especially in the pine barrens, I mean, yeah. you think that'd be a slam dunk, right, for, for habitat down there, uh, given it's a, a disturbance-driven system, it still isn't enough because we don't have the kind of um, management that we were, you know, hoping for. No, um, when, when you see open fields that are starting to turn into early succession forests around here, yeah. I wish I was exaggerating. It's you can't see through it because of calorie pair. Mm-hmm. Um, and oh, that's, they're yeah, they're yeah, just taking true. that over to the point where, you know, I, no, they're probably coming up like six inches to a foot apart. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and yeah. it's so thick with that and it's, it's taking over or, or other uh, invasives mm-hmm. in those areas and they're not being managed at all. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. they're, they're being thought to be left to return to the wild, but they're really not. And, I don't, and I forget if we discuss it on the podcast or is through our video series that we were working on that a lot of people drive by that and don't even see a problem. They don't, they don't, or I shouldn't say they don't see a problem. They don't recognize that it's a problem. No, they, they don't just recognize don't know the, the, the plants yeah. and 
Um, yeah. I even had a conversation when all the, the pears were blooming back in, was that March, I guess? Yeah. And um, with a friend, and I was like, he's complaining about his pear tree that he actually had. It was not a Bradford pear. And uh, I was like, well, you got all those Bradford pears across the street that are, they're an issue. Mm-hmm. Like, but but he uh, up until that point he didn't even know that was a thing. That was he an thought issue. it was almost beautiful sure. in a way. So, do you, yeah. are 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 the increase in deer um, and what you know with all the increased edge habitat and what they've been eating? Are they is the increased amount of deer? Are they reducing the amount of habitat as well that the quail? Would well, they definitely eat? play. They, yeah, they definitely play into it, Fran. I mean, okay. yeah, there's, there's a lot of factors. You know, what's funny to us, too, and the more we dive into this at Audubon, we're finding it's a couple things. Obviously, obviously, yeah, deer are a major issue in this state. Okay. But depending on where you pick pro- projects, you got to factor them in. But you might be able to um, lessen, the pro- lessen their impact if you're working at scale. And doing some of the practices that try to stimulate growth, like even with the forestry work that we've been doing, we pick, or have been pricking, you know, picking projects that, that based on the research, we know we're going to get good regeneration okay. if we do things at scale. So think about this as like, if you pick the right site and you clear out a 10 acre piece and you're trying to, to stimulate the, the regeneration. 10 acres versus something that's small, like a quarter acre, the scale-wise in those things, it, it, it becomes, um, when you open it up to the sunlight getting down and letting it actually stimulate the seed bank, and you get that, that big push of, of, um, of plants regenerating, it, over, it overwhelms the deer to the point where you might have some browse, but not to the point where it can't overcome it. Mm-hmm. But what we've seen in smaller cuts you know, saying, okay, you know, maybe some folks think that I'm going to do a small cut because I don't want to deal with invasives and everything else coming in. It turns into a food plot because now you've got a smaller area that these comes in, that the deer come in, and when you have that regeneration comes in, it just kind of funnels them into one spot. Yeah. On a 10-acre cut, though, you don't even notice the browse, if any, mm-hmm. because everything is kind of coming and overwhelmed, and you're able to get that habitat without really worrying about it. Same thing with the invasives. When you think about, depending on where you where you are too, you can't just do this everywhere. But when you do those kind of cuts and you get the regeneration you want, you know, a, a lot of times, and this happened to us up in Florida too, is a lot of times it's all native stuff that comes in that overwhelms and never even gets a chance for some of these other things to establish. Yeah. So yeah, it's a lot of factors, but the main thing that we're seeing is it really comes down to sunlight. Um, some of these forests. They're, you know, they're overstocked. Um, there's no way that that regeneration can work because the ones that are making it through in these shady conditions are then picked off real easy by deer, you know. Well, I was going to ask, so, what what are their natural predator? Like, what are... For the quail? Yeah. Yeah, so for quail, <laughs> these poor <laughs> things get from all sides. I mean, it's horrible. <laughs> um, they're so low in the food chain. Um because, you know, they're getting whacked from uh, all the mesopredators, right? So anything, you know, from coyotes and bobcats and you know, fox to all uh, the other stuff, they're all like the nest predators, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, raccoons, possums, skunks, you know, down south, it's armadillos. Um, the problems we saw, too, we, we, the amount of snakes 
that were uh, eating um, not just the eggs, but, you know, they were even taking some of the birds. Wow. Um, wow. I remember even looking at some of the literature from our, one of our partners, Toil Timbers, down in, uh, in Tallahassee, and they had, they had photos of bullfrogs eating, eating the chicks. <laughs> so, so, that's, so you think about this, and on top of that, then you got aerial predators, right, the hawks, the owls, uh, you know, all these things coming from the top. So everywhere you look, everything is a predator kind of to, uh, to quail. They, they, these, these things are uh, they're really up against a, you know, some mm-hmm. pretty so, tough odds. So without the habitat, they can't survive. No, yeah. and that's just it. I mean, you got to look for habitat that's giving them that, you know, that cover from not just the, the raccoons and, and stuff. I mean, even from the air. So, you know, woody vegetation like, like low bush blueberry, huckleberry, um, that kind of stuff provides really good cover for them. Um, because again, when you think about the, the structure of those plants, right? Yeah. They're a lot of woody stems. They're close to the ground, but they're not as close to the ground where those birds can move along the bottoms, you know, really quickly throughout mm-hmm. the, uh, you know, in and out. Cause it's like, it's still bare ground under the plant, but yeah. they're actually getting the cover from top, uh, for the woody stems that the area, that the aerial predators came from. And, down and, down. and where it's natural habitat for low bush blueberry, if it's right, like if you're in, um, say southern new well, jersey the pine barrens. It's, yeah, yeah the pine yeah. barrens it's it's almost like a ground cover like you can't see that mm-hmm. that uh forest yeah, floor but when which you is... but when you get when you get down at quail level and look on the ground and through the bottom of those plants so we've done this it's pretty wild you realize that it's like a this open lanes everywhere it, <laughs> i remember taking like a like a baseball and like you could kind of um if you could roll it through the bottom you could say wow i mean it's if you can get a baseball through the bottom of that it's by rolling it, yeah, that's a perfect area for the size yeah. of a quail mm-hmm. to maneuver, but yet it still had to protect the cover on the top mm-hmm. from, nice. uh, from the stems. Now yeah. I'm going to have to try that. Yeah. I'm going to make sure I have a tennis ball with you, me. You mentioned some yeah. of the, the key species that quail need for habitat, but I want to dive into it a little bit further and just say, what are the ones that are most important for their diet? What are, what plants oh, are native eating? plants? Sure. What are attracting yeah. the things that they might eat? I don't, I'm not even sure what quail eat. I'm assuming the so, seeds yeah, and insects. So, <laughs> but. So they they'll eat both uh, seeds and insects, um, fruit. So you know when they're when they're young, obviously the chicks they're they're just feeding strictly on uh, insects. You know until they get a little bit older, then they're then they'll eat seed. But okay, things that produce hard and soft mast, right? So um, everything from blueberries, huckleberries, bayberry, uh, elderberry, blackberries, um, beach plums, native sumacs. Um, and then when you get into the uh, herbaceous stuff, uh, partridge peas, a real big one that they love, wild indigo, um, native lespedesias, tick, uh, tick trefoils, another real big mm-hmm. one. Okay. So Bidens, milk peas, um, and then the other part to all that, you know, nut rushes, broom sedge. But the other part to that, too, is also the, the cover. Um, so things like switchgrass, little blue stem, big blue stem, I think it's a broom sedge. They're really important for the whole thing, for both foliage, but also the cover mm-hmm. and nesting material. Okay. You know? So we we talked about the decline. We've we've talked about uh, all the challenges that quail faces, but yeah. and and where they're at. But it doesn't mean that it's all doom and gloom. Uh, there's a no. lot of good work being done. So. Mm-hmm. Um, what what can be done to fix it? Like I, I know that's part of what. Uh, what we've been mm-hmm. talking about with the working wa- working lands for wildlife partnership. What are some of the things that they're doing to help improve habitat for for quail? Right. 
so in the working lands wildlife, they have a bunch of practices okay that, that they'll um, provide landowners and farmers with um you know technical advice on how to do it but also through working lands if you're accepted into that program comes funding opportunities where they'll uh, pay you cost shares they'll actually give you money to do these practices okay and so some of the practices to help restore and improve the habitat um, are things like um, forest stewardship plan, uh, plan uh, planning for your woodlots on how to cut certain things at certain times and adjust the um, the type of species, uh, vegetation species that are in your area. Um, brush management. Again, it's, it's a lot of it is cutting and planting, cutting and planting. Okay. But also there's a, a, another big practice that goes along with it. Um, and this is the stewardship end of things because once you've done all your cutting and planting and getting it the way you want it, you've got to maintain, right? And you also got to maintain um, the diversity of that forest or that, that brush area. So one of the cool things that they pay for too is prescribed burning. And in the pine barrens, you know, this serves as, uh, you know, dual purposes for not just habitat quail and a bunch of other species. But let's face it, guys, I mean, you know, fuel loads in the pine barrens, uh, for why the wildfire risk is pretty high, yeah. as we've seen the last couple of years, right? Some of the fires that broke out in the pygmy pines, and that was 12,000 acres. Then we have another one this year, right? It was 6,000. Yeah. So by doing this work where you're doing, um, where you're manipulating uh, some of the woodland to try to regenerate a young forest and plant the right stuff for the, the, uh, the habitat for these birds, you're also, through control burning, you know, reducing the fuel loads that go along with all of that, and then also creating areas for those birds to, um, you know, be able to nest in and, and, uh, and forage in and, and uh, raise, a, raise their broods. Now, has, has this program been successful? Has it been popular? Yeah. In fact, it's one of the more, more popular ones out there. Um, quick story about it, which was amazing to me. And this is really the good work of, uh, of Division of Fish and Game, uh, Fish and Wildlife in New Jersey, was that when we started doing the first project with uh, translocating wild birds from Georgia up to the Pine Barrens through, through the study that we were doing um, at Pine Island Cranberry, okay. uh, right smack in the middle of um, the Pine Barrens region, um, where we were bringing up birds and we were testing um, practice to see whether or not you could bring birds from southern latitudes up here, repopulate an area. Would they take? Would they adjust? That whole thing. But what was neat was as we were doing that project, Division of Fish and Wildlife actually saw an opportunity in working with NRCS through the Working Lands for Wildlife project. They were able to convince the feds to include Bob White in the project just because, now think about this, the other states, the other states that got the funding, mm -hmm. South Carolina, North Carolina, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, they all have existing quail populations. New Jersey doesn't. Wow. But we got such a response from the public who want to see this bird back on the landscape for kind of reasons too. You know, like Tom said, they remember it from back in the day and they were like, wow, I can't believe this is going. It's part of our heritage, part of growing up here. That the response was so unbelievable. I would get calls all the time. How do I get quail on my property? You know, what can I do to help it? That we were able to, you know, actually get a federal funding source to help these people out with providing funds to buy the right plants, do the right management. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's been really popular and really successful because we've gotten a ton of people to sign up for practices that 
on their own, they either would not have been able to do or fund, but also, especially in the Pine Barrens, it caught on really big because of the idea that they wanted to see the birds back, but it also helped with fuel load reductions uh, for wildfires. So we were getting the benefit of a lot of different things through that, that funding and through this initiative. And that's pretty cool. Yeah, and and that's and that's all good important practices, not just for quail. Also, I mean to oh yeah to, to get people to be active stewards are, are pretty important, especially for for large uh, property owners to to take that initiative. Is, is yeah, a lot of one. people forget, friend. I mean, that you know, stewardship's part of the whole thing. It's it's one thing to go out and preserve a property. Okay, it's great, preserved it up. But if you don't do anything with it, or you, or even if you're in your house, think of it as a house, right? You buy a house, you don't just let it go to pot. After a while, you got to improve it a little bit. You got to, you know, fix it up a tad. You know, it's the same thing. Yeah. It's, it's the exact same thing. And um, yeah, it, it really this helped really push this concept of taking care of it in the long term and helping you out to actually get that habitat and all these ancillary benefits. Um, out of the program, which you know, which is great. And, and how how many years has the program been going at this point? So, working lands for wildlife has been around for four years, and the quail project that we started with Tall Timbers, Pine Island, Pine Creek Forestry, and um, University of Delaware, that started about uh, eight years ago. Okay. So, yeah, we started we started it off got it all going and then they got the funding and now now we're in that mode where we're signing up people left and right um especially in the pinelands uh, for the project and um and the applications are soon so yeah that's something we want to push uh, push out there that, and we're definitely we're definitely going to mention you know, that at the at yeah the, at the end because it's it's a, it's a cool thing and an easy thing to to be a part of so so what are some of the su- success stories have you seen quail so, success is—I'd say things are a success. Uh, it all depends on how you look at it, right? Yes. Because the original project was the the Division of Fish and Wildlife had come up with an, an action plan because they recognized the same thing that we saw years ago that the, the species was winking out. Okay. And along with those species, the, the quail, a lot of other early successionals were winking out. So they came up with, a, with an action plan to look at it see where in the state was it really possible to do work and then if you did the work how would you get the populations up we took that plan looked at where that they were they thought the best spots were and decided to work in the pine barrens okay um pine barrens offered a lot of good things right it offered uh regulations that kind of limited uh development it um it also had the habitat type that we were looking for and the other thing too was burning was essential part of quail management and the pine barrens again given that disturbance system that's based in burning it just seemed like it would fit right yeah so we partnered with a couple different people the biggest one was um was pine island cranberry company uh they're a company they own about fourteen thousand acres in the pine barrens which which is huge i mean there's there's, uh... a little bit of New Jersey history here, but we're, I don't know if we're the number one. I think we're like top three for cranberry producing states in the country. Correct. Um, and Pine Island, I think, might be the largest producer in the country. We should I add, think they're the largest. Uh, they're definitely the largest, they're definitely the largest in, the largest in New Jersey. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, they're, uh, 
I think they're the ones when you, or sometimes when you see the the Ocean Spray commercials, every once in a while it's one of them that's on the bottle or in the in the yes, bog or on TV. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I have seen uh, uh, Hanes on the back of a bottle. Yep. Yes, I have seen that. <laughs> yes, yeah, awesome family to work with. And the beauty of it was, again, the large a large property, uh, but they all, and this is the key, they were already doing stewardship on their property for a forest stewardship mm-hmm. plan that um, Pine Creek Forestry had written up. Mm-hmm. And when we look at this property with other quail um, uh, folks, you know, again, University of Delaware we brought in, we brought in experts from Tall Timbers Research uh, Facility down in uh, Tallahassee who are, like, who are like the guys, they are the gods of quail translocation, fire ecology. We brought them up to look at the site and they said, you know, this is the perfect situation to try something where the only birds that are being given up for translocation in the entire U.S. Uh, are down in Florida and Georgia. They have the populations mm-hmm. that they can actually, you know, take birds out, put them somewhere else to try to start. I, I was actually going to ask you that question. Is there a difference genetically between the birds in in Georgia and Florida than what you would have found in New Jersey? So, yeah. So the ones up here, you know, when you, theoretically, when you want to have translocation, you want to try to get a species that, um, I mean, you know, I, I say as close to the same latitude that your project area is going to be. Okay. That's why this is an issue because the birds in up north, they weigh a lot more. They weigh a lot more. They're a little heavier stock and they've adapted to the climate conditions up here. Right. Gotcha. But if you don't have that to give up, so you got to start looking at other places. Yeah. So when you think about this, like I said before, they're tanking across the entire range. If that's the only place that there's a possibility of even getting enough birds to bring up, you don't want to waste it no, and bring up, you, uh, you know, mm-hmm. 800 birds up here and they all drop dead on you because they couldn't handle it. So what we were looking with, the, the, the experiment was bringing up 80 birds a year, um, you know, uh, uh, 40 pair. Which isn't um, a lot. Which, which isn't, it's not a lot. No, it's not a it's, lot. No. So we were, we were looking to start the population over. What we were going to do is can these birds make it in from the southern latitude up here? Can they adapt to what we have going on in the Pine Barrens? How, are they, gonna, how they nest? How they deal with predators? All that good stuff just to prove that that could work and see what the, um, the, the, the population dynamics would work out um, with having them. So every one of those birds, when we would bring them up, they all had radio collars. They all were tested for diseases before they came up. They all had leg bands identifying them. So we would release them on Pine Island, who was doing stewardship already through their for our stewardship plan, yeah. creating great habitat on the property. Monitor them. We had a, uh, hired a grad, uh, two grad students, one in his doctorate, the other one in the master's, to basically tail these things everywhere they went all around and figure out, you know, where they went, what they did, and can they make it? Yeah. At the end of the day, um, the the results actually are, are sitting at the uh, uh, the Wildlife Society's uh, journal right now. They they accepted it for publication. They just had to tweak it some. Okay. But at the end of the day, it turned out that yes, the birds from down south can make it up here in New Jersey. That's a big step. That is at least huge. now you know you can pull off a translocation. The thing that was screwy, though, and we're still trying to figure it out, and that's the next phase of this, is they didn't, um, they were, like, delayed in their nesting, like, by two, three weeks, which 
it kind of that we that they couldn't figure out why one of the reasons it's one of the things they they think might be an issue is uh the translocation itself having to drive them all the way up here um and you got about 36 hours to get them out into the field was that going to impact but at the end of the day what we were finding was the birds were nesting the birds did you know do two uh you know uh, two broods we had males incubating the uh, the the, uh, the nest when the females were killed. Okay. All the things that we're supposed to do, and it turned out, you know, we got some pretty decent numbers. Awesome. I mean, out of the 320 birds that we released over the over the four year program, we had 47 nests confirmed, which was the first wild bobwhite quail nesting in the pine since the 80s. Wow. We had 173 uh, confirmed chicks that hatched. Uh, we we monitor them that they did overwinter, so they didn't all get wiped out. Okay. Um, and um, yeah, we even had it where we were able to determine that bobwhite quail from the previous year's release were pairing with the newly released birds, so they were hooking, they were finding oh, wow. each other, they were bringing them out. So this was a big deal, and we're at a point now where you have um, all these other landowners now seeing this, seeing that it can work wanting to be a part of it that yeah they sign up for the program and we start doing work on their properties and then this year when you asked about seeing birds i got a call from uh from bill haynes at pine island okay. that he was at a next door neighbor's property uh and they were listening to bob white's calling in the field wow. so i went down there and met with a guy who was another cranberry producer and sure enough we wound up seeing quail uh out in his blueberry fields that is and awesome. the question is now is are these are birds their progeny from the pine island stuff because we stopped we stopped doing uh translocation last year okay but but they're there so that's a good sign that's you know? a great sign. Um, so yeah thing, so we're pretty uh, we're pretty stoked another Shit. thing i'll point out before we get too far away from that topic is in the new jersey pine barrens um a, a neighbor property isn't like uh in your development where your neighbor's 50 yards away yeah, right. especially with pine island your neighbor could be miles away at that point yeah, yeah. so that's on a neighbor's property actually says quite a bit it's not a it's not like you're you're yes. close yes yeah <laughs> no, like, so that was kind of neat i mean we we actually tra- we actually tracked one of, the, one of our birds uh during the project that that went a total of uh seven miles to another spot i mean that's that's now that's extreme for them to get that far wow but we know, but we did have them moving around and searching for, for other areas and all that. So, you know, we even found them, they were hopping the fence and going into Warren Grove even. So, I mean, they were moving around, but it's all about the habitat, right? So if they're finding the right spots and they're making it, that's what we were looking for. And now we have that particular landowner who now wants to sign up the program because mm-hmm. he's, he's seeing this momentum. He's seeing all this cool stuff. And the best thing that he told me was, this guy's a fifth generation farmer. He goes, you know, I remember the days when we were sitting out on the porch with my father and my grandfather and they would they would whistle and the quail would whistle back he goes now i have it all back again 30 years later here i am listening to it the guy was excited into it and you know you had to love it and it's just it's the best that is awesome that is awesome yeah. go, go ahead tom i'm sorry so you mentioned before there's a lot of people excited about this and um mm-hmm. and i'd extend that to even people who aren't from new jersey that are excited about it because I, I mentioned before when i first heard about this reintroduction, it wasn't from someone in New Jersey. It was actually from uh, someone from Tennessee who, when I, they were given a presentation on Bob White Quail, I kind of told them that same story I started out with. What I used to hear yeah. them all the time. I didn't even notice that I didn't hear them anymore. 
Right. And he was like, oh, yeah, well, you're getting a reintroduction right in your backyard. <laughs> and he told me all about this project. I I didn't even know. I think this was probably in, like, year one or two when okay. it started. Yeah, but yeah. he was so fired up that this was happening, and it was a 1,000 miles away from where he lived. And I've had that yeah. same conversation with people from Georgia and Kentucky and yep. all over the place, and uh, and they're all excited that we're going from almost a population of zero or a population of zero mm-hmm. to something – moderately significant and what's interesting to me is that the excitement that people are expressing isn't because it's it's an animal that they want to hunt (laughs) you know it's they're just the the romanticism of it is exactly yeah friend that's exactly it they remember that sound like i said when i was a kid it was in my grandparents house i remember hearing that or asking my grandmother you know looking at this little goofy bird come out of a hedgerow and hit her bird field and run back in but I remember that so vividly, and it was so cool. And that's what these guys are remembering back in the day, you know, the that sound of the Bob White. And, and then let me tell you, again, even with Bill Haynes to tell me, when, you're, when you start working, when you start noticing the stuff for the quail, all of a sudden you start noticing all those other things that you kind of forgot about that, hey, all of a sudden I'm starting to see a lot more Nighthawks going around. And, well, it's because your manager of the quail is bringing those in. Hey, I'm checking out a lot more butterflies these days. Well, it's because your manager of the quail is bringing those in. And it's it's really cool, and it's an eye opener to a lot of the the folks down there that just kind of took a lot for I guess for granted. You can't blame them doing day to day stuff. You forget about it. But then when you slow stop and slow down, it's like oh my god, look what's around me. And it's all because they planted the right thing. They managed the property a little bit different. Maybe cut back the you know the invasives, and all of a sudden you got a whole wonderland right in the backyard it's looking amazing and what i love about the program too and this is something that tom touched on in the last episode with his final thought is that it wasn't just one organization that did this a lot of people work together to make this happen Mm -hmm. um and that's the important thing because like tom Mm -hmm. had mentioned so many people are are working towards the same goal maybe for different reasons but it's the same goal and, and a lot more could be accomplished if if those organizations could work together. And I think this is a, a great example of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. so we, we started off a little doom and gloom talking about, <laughs> you know, the, the state of the quail, but, but we're ending it really with some great news. And the best thing is the next round of funding is coming out. So to give yes, even more is. habitat for that. So if, if there's, private landowners or, or even someone from the public that wants to get involved what's the next step for for people for this so the next step right so the next step now here's one caveat okay, okay is that the working on wildlife program like i said is the nocs program and it has those four species um that you can apply for funding bog turtle golden wing bob white and black duck for for bob white though there is a demarcation land in the state and Basically, everything below Route 195 is eligible, okay. more or less. Okay, so you got to keep that in mind. Okay, uh, for, for quail. Yeah. The other species, though, um, they also it, there's all there's other places that you can do that too. So yeah, I would say just check check with NRCS. But for the quail stuff, all right, um, if you're below that line, uh, you can easily look at. Um, the New Jersey NRCS website under the programs and look for working lands. Okay. Um, but you can also contact New Jersey Audubon and me uh, at my, my email address, um, which is john, J-O-H-N dot park, P-A-R-K-E 
at njaudubon.org, and I can help you out with it. Uh, and also, uh, we partner, as, as Fran was saying too, like with other agencies, um, uh, Quail Forever, Austin Damager, who also works in the uh, NRCS office in Columbus, also handles the, the project as well. Um, so he's another contact to look for. Um, but a lot of this stuff is available online or contact the New Jersey Audubon and get a hold of me and we can come out to the property, take a look at it, see if you're eligible for the funding. If you're, even if you're not even eligible, we can still make recommendations for, you know, what you can do on the property to, if not for quail, but to benefit for, you know, other, um, other wildlife or just native, um, habitat improvements and and we're gonna try to put as many of these links on the website uh cool. when we publish this so if people go yeah. to uh, www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com mm-hmm. we'll we'll cool we'll list as many of those as we can um nice how how is is there an end in sight for this program or right now it's a healthy program and, and the funding's there that it can keep going well, it's a, it's a healthy program right now. Um, this program is attached to the farm bill. So every four years when uh, the farm bill comes up for uh, renewal, um, that's when you, you know, a lot of people come out to uh, make sure that you don't lose this kind of funding. The funding itself is through um, another funding mechanism um, in, in USDA. Okay. And it seems to be funded on a pretty regular basis because it's there, like one of their biggest programs. So I think we're good for a while. Uh, but again, even if it's not through NRCS, there's also other programs. Um, the uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Partners for Fish and Wildlife Program, where they give a lot of, um, uh, they, 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 they give materials in some cases out uh, for, for restoration or they'll lend you a seed drill, that kind of thing. Not so much for quail because quail's uh, a non-migratory species. They deal with a lot of migratory. Okay. But you can, when you when you are doing habitat work, you know, don't think about just single species selection. When you're thinking about it, uh, think about all those species that work it. So when you're doing work for just quail, prairie warblers, night hawks, um, you, you know, uh, uh, box turtles. Uh, I don't know, pine snakes, all these different things come into the pl- into play because they're going to work with that type of habitat you're maintaining for quail. And that's, you know, we've been preaching since the beginning uh, ecosystem and, and habitat yeah. and, and, and and what all that needs to survive, not just one species, every species. Yes. You need that balance, right. and it's nice to see that we're working on, on trying to restore that balance so it can benefit benefit the quail. That would be wonderful. And I'll, and I'll tell you what, Fran, it's it's amazing. Like the stuff I got to see spending time in the Pine Barrens every day on that project and looking at the different species that were utilizing the habitats. I saw stuff that I've only seen in books that were showing up or growing or whatever in those spaces, and it would blow my mind. And it was incredible. I mean, the diversity was amazing. And all it took was... Maybe clearing a little bit area here, allowing the sun to come in, getting things to, to grow a little bit. Maybe plant some things here and there to get it going. Do a burn, and oh my god, it was like uh, like you, you didn't even really, you couldn't believe you were in New Jersey. Like it didn't feel like New Jersey. Wow, I, you know, I, it was it was wild. I can imagine wild. the excitement with that. I and Tom knows this because I shared this in our uh, Facebook uh, group for the podcast. Mm-hmm. I got excited over a feather 
that I found in my yard <laughs> yeah, yesterday. That, you kidding me? That I had no idea <laughs> what it was, and that's what was exciting to me. It turned out to be a tail feather from a northern flicker. Oh, cool. So I, you know, and I wish I had seen it, but instead I just found the, the feather. But I was like, yeah. I have never seen a feather like this before. What is this from? Like, I was just. <laughs> <laughs> it's good, man. Yeah, yeah, it's all fun stuff. So we, we always end up the podcast with two things we we mm-hmm. end it with a final thought where everyone gets the stage to to say whatever they want but we always ask one last question which sure. is what is your favorite native plant now we will offer if you'd rather give a, a favorite bird it can be a favorite bird or a favorite no native plant. i'm i'm down with native plants i All love right. them so and i got one i got i i have one this is my go-to everywhere All right. it's 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 the best it's it's sweet pepper bush clether oh, that, that, i mean i can't I can't beat that. I, I, th- that smell, that fragrance. I mean, you'll never forget it, man. It's it's the greatest in the world. And the bonus is it's like chocolate cake for uh, hummingbirds and butterflies, right? Yeah. yeah. And I actually just planted a few in my fiance's mm-hmm. yard this past weekend. So, mm-hmm. And, she, and yeah. she's that and some uh, Virginia Sweet Spire. Uh, actually, oh, some elderberry too. So, yeah. So, nice. we're, we're trying to create create much better habitat ourselves so that's a mm-hmm. great choice you know yeah. good fall color <laughs> nice summer yep. flower mm-hmm. uh yep. so many benefits for that yeah and I, I mean and i see it everywhere i see it in the pines i see it up here in north jersey I see it down in the coast i mean it's it's pretty uh you know it's it's pretty resilient and um you can get a little bit out of control if you let it go but i tell you i, I don't mind it because god that, that smell is just amazing it, it really oh, is man. <laughs> it yeah. really, that's a great Love choice it. You know, but they're all yeah. good choices. Yeah. I don't like. I would <laughs> like you would ever hear me say, "Oh, that's really that's yeah." <laughs> like that's not going to happen. But that's except, I, for, <laughs> except for Marcus Gray's dad with his red cedar Christmas trees. We did kind of yeah, that's, that's, that was a bad, yeah. He his <laughs> he was saying it was because of the area. That's what mm. what people use. But as <laughs> for the first episode, <laughs> we, we decided to bring in because we were going to do it. Uh, we had video, video as well, and yeah. and we we kind of changed our mind with that. But we brought in two big <laughs> seven gallon eastern red cedars, and then I put them in the the conference room and closed the door. And yeah. when I came back in, it was like someone smacked me across the head with a litter box. It was <laughs> we're like this is great plant, just not for indoors, not for a Christmas tree. But Marcus has really good fond memories of that. Yeah. So yeah. it's. That's pretty cool. So I, I I will leave that with him. I'm not going to I'm not going to adopt that tradition. Um, all right. So any final thought? We kind of give you the stage where you can okay. you can sum up. You can add anything. You can pitch yeah. anything. Whatever you want. The floor is yours. Uh, you can say okay. whatever you want. All right. So um, I guess I guess the big thing is, is if there's any takeaway, right? Because I know that again when we start promoting stuff at Quail, I I usually get a million calls about, you know, how do I get quail on my property? And what I tell everybody is, look, as a landowner, just do good stewardship on your property. You know, ask the state and other land trusts and stuff that you you see out there to do the same with theirs. And just be a good steward of the land. It doesn't have to be just for one species. Think of it holistic. And if you're doing that, then you're doing your part to keep, you know, areas in New Jersey wild and keeping our great wildlife species here. Because I'm going to tell you right now, people don't realize it, but New Jersey, we are blessed with the amount of 
biodiversity species wise it's unbelievable what we have here and it's because we have so many different habitat types and it's just an amazing state to be in so you know don't worry about if you don't get a quail but be happy when you get something else because of the actions you took on that property it's all good yeah totally the great great thought and, and new jersey is div- diverse and the more that that we venture out and to, to some of these destinations you realize how lucky we are with with all the different ecosystems that we have yeah and it's uh you know quail quail are great there's a lot of great things though and and anything you could do to help to restore that balance is is wonderful. absolutely tom would you like to go next or you yeah, want me to go i'm gonna tell a short story then have my final thought all right okay but all right when i started thinking about oh all these people from all over the place have been excited about quail in new jersey um another guy I should have mentioned before i was actually on a trip to new mexico and um it just happened to be i was me and the owner of this business were in in the car and somehow we started talking about cranberries and and i think we were talking about this whole quail project how cool it was and then he's like in mexico this is in new mexico yeah, yeah. In new mexico and like dry oh, area yeah. seven thousand feet of elevation like there's just yeah. barely any vegetation there at all and um and he's like why are those knuckleheads always standing in the middle of the water with all the cranberries? And I had to explain like the whole cranberry harvest because uh, the, he didn't—he just didn't know that was even a thing. He thought it was just a marketing ploy to get, get these guys and waiters standing, standing in the water. No, that's but, real farming, guys. Yeah, but my my final thought is when we started this podcast, the main goal was to really highlight some of the organizations that we get to work with that are doing great work. And I think all of them have been nonprofits. If, if not all, most of them, that was the, the yeah. goal was to feature nonprofits that need your volunteer time, need your dollars, just need your help. And hopefully we got connected our listeners with organizations they wanted to get involved with something they were passionate mm. about. And um, one of the things that I think we missed when we were thinking about this is you also have to get involved in politics a little bit and it's something that's happening in our town right now is um our township committee is is trying to get rid of our environmental commission and they're considered almost like a nuisance to to some of the things they're trying to do and uh and i know they have bigger problems than i can even comprehend but in addition to getting involved with some of these groups you got to stand up for what you're believing stand up for what's going on in your town and make sure that when something you don't necessarily like, um, like they're trying to get rid of the environmental commission or something like that, you gotta, you gotta raise your voice. And I know we have listeners who are actually probably the loudest voices for that in our town right now. And I want to congratulate them for doing it. And, and, uh, and I know we're, we're trying to step up to the plate with that as well. It's it's very hard because I I look at this town as, as a farm community. Mm -hmm. Um, and Mm -hmm. it's evolved over the years, but it's at heart, it's a farm community, but the newest crop seems to be warehouses. And it's, uh, Mm. it's, it's, it's tough to see the change because Mm -hmm. I honestly felt that this was an area that would never change. Um, And it's, and I was just doing, whenever I give presentations, a lot of times I talk about pollinators and pollinator decline and, um, a lot of people like to point the fingers at, with pollinator decline and say, oh, well, it's what the farms are doing or it's what this people do. Nah. It's really, we've we developed a lot. And you look at just our town of Columbus. When I was born, so I'm 31, when I was born, the town population was about 3,000. It's now 8,500 people. And, uh, and a lot of that, it was like 3,000 up until I think I was in probably just getting into middle school or high school. Yeah. So when I was 12, 13, 14, um, and then it just kind of blew up. 
And uh, not to say that's a bad thing, but you think about all the people that are moving into those houses. You have bigger houses, more lawn, more edge habitat, which yeah. raises how many deer you have. More no, chemicals. Less po- or less habitat for pollinators, not just pollinators, but you're finding out quail as well. Um, yep. And we have to be cognizant of those things. It's right. you, we got to do things because we're human, but we have to be cognizant of the impacts we have on on the environment as when, well. When you see a, a community more than double in size in less than 10, 15 years, that's when you need to really evaluate your environmental impacts, not mm-hmm. do away with that com- commission. Now is when mm-hmm. you need it most. Yeah. Um, so everyone who's doing all the good work for that, kudos, because well, it's, it's important. Um, well, Tom, like you, like you were saying, Tom, one thing, too, that, that I want to play off to what you said, too, about the uh, the farming community. Listen, man, stu- farmers, they're the stewards of the land, mm-hmm. right? And if you're losing your farming, you're losing a huge piece of, you know, not just natural heritage, but all those ecological services and, and the food chain, everything that, that uh, I mean, food, the food production – you, you got to support local guys yeah, yeah, uh, yep. because I'm telling you right now, if it wasn't for the private landowners and the, uh, the farmers on the, uh, there, none of these programs would, 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 would be out there. Yeah. Right. I mean, they'd oh, just yeah. be full yeah. apart. And, and it's those, it's those folks, the farmers, uh, you know, the pine Island cranberry guys of the world and, you know, all of them that are, that thank God that they're doing this kind of stuff to maintain not just wild mm-hmm. the wildlife to them is almost ancillary, right? It's like a secondary benefit, but you don't even realize as a neighbor they're basically helping you out with water purification, soil health, mm-hmm. you know, air quality, and it's so important to make sure people get that that you know it's it, yeah. you don't you don't want to lose your agriculture whatever you do yeah. and i'll, uh, I'll even down. with talking about pine island it's not what you you guys are doing there with the the working lands they yeah. don't have to do that yeah. there's a little bit of reward because uh i guess they're getting a little bit of money from it but they're if they no, focused you know, you know, on, on the agriculture they probably make more money than what they'd get through well here's that but yeah. here's a little tidbit Pine Island is not part of the Working Lands for Wildlife. They they were doing stuff on their own wow. to the yeah. point where they, they they were like, "Listen, we can do this. We've been doing it. We're, you know, there's a there's a phenomenal quote from Stephanie Haynes um, that she gave. I don't want to paraphrase in it uh, that she gave one time, and she said that you know, our farm we've always had this mentality of, um, you know, we we have to help the the water we have to help the forest we have to help the the crops and if we're doing all of that kind of stuff and the quail are able to survive then we know we're doing our job and i was like man that's 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 the way to go because they inherently were doing this mm-hmm. for the farm and through those practices that region that you know the neighborhood the the the, the animals that were on we're all benefiting yeah. and uh you know it, you don't benefit that when you drop yeah. a uh, a warehouse <laughs> back on and, top of a farm no, field. You no, know? you get the opposite. Not good. And, and uh, yeah. again, talking about farmers, I've seen a lot of farmers kind of have that same mentality. They don't have to do a lot of the the environmental stuff they do. And a lot of times when they don't do it, it's because they're already working with like razor thin margins on stuff. I know cranberries in particular, yeah. they're experiencing some of their lowest prices in in mm. probably generations. It was years and then decades. It might be generations now. And same thing with corn and soybeans and all these things. They're already operating on such thin margins that, and they get a bad reputation for a lot of things. And a lot of times they might not even know 
but no, they. Uh, I think a lot of them are concerned. They're definitely concerned about the soil and the water, and maybe they don't always take the right approach, but they are thinking about it, which is more than a lot of people are. And they're not just working oh. with, with one organization either because yeah. we're, we're working with uh, cranberry growers, working with Xerces to help uh, improve oh, yeah. pollinator yeah. habitat. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of great organizations that, that, that these farmers are, are using mm-hmm. to, to do the right thing that they don't really have to do. Yeah. So. Yeah, well, all I can tell you is the the cranberry guys, that whole industry that I've been working with, they've embraced this kind of stuff. They're doing great work, and uh, I've been we've been really excited about working with them. And uh, uh, and and I see all those things happening. Like I said, they don't have to do it, but they recognize that the benefits from it, and it's uh, it's impressive. Um, yeah, we've been really really happy. But again, so the word is you know, support your local guys is what I'm trying mm-hmm. to get out yep. there because. Mm-hmm. You hit it on the head, Tom. It's it's important, or you're going to lose mm-hmm. even more. I agree. State. Yep. I agree. Yeah. So get whatever get involved, whether it's just with organizations. Yep. Dive into politics a little bit. Sit, sit in on your your township committee meetings, and just so you know what's going on. Um, you, you need to know what's just, going on and, and stand up for for what you think is important. Yes. Yeah, and make sure you do your own research. I can tell yes, you this. Yeah. You know, again, there is a lot of organizations out there. And a lot of different opinions and a lot of different methodologies. Uh, it's all good to, to listen to all sides, but make sure you're doing your own research and don't just jump on a bandwagon because you think it might be good. You'd be surprised when you dig in. Sometimes uh, you really got to know um, you got to know the particulars. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's all. That's all I kind of mentioned. Fine. Do yeah. your research. Find your own fit. Yep. Do the right. There you thing. go. There you go. There you go. Right. your turn. My After turn. that, <laughs> yep. mine's, my mine's long pretty simple. Thought. You know, it's. <laughs> It's really easy as we're doing this um, because as as we do each podcast, it's cause and effect, and it's really easy to focus on the doom and gloom. But you really got to put that aside and realize all, all that's there, yes, but all the great work that is being done out there to fix and correct it. And you really need to celebrate mm-hmm. and focus on the good and push forward with that. So um, try not to be – you know, really, like, oh, we're now we're losing quail and and the deer are a problem and and we lost this and that. It, you know what? That's these are all problems. Everything's fixable. I mentioned that last time. Everything's fixable. Move forward, mm-hmm. and uh, and and focus on that. And I, I celebrate you, John, for the great work you're doing. Thank you. Yes. So thanks, much. thanks, guys, yeah. guys. Thanks again for having me, and uh, thanks for putting the word out about Working Lands for Wildlife, the Quail Initiative, and uh, New Jersey Audubon, and. Again, you, we, we love pine, uh, you know, we, uh, look, we love Pineless Nursery, and uh, you guys are really doing some great work, too. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So, well, that about wraps it up. Thank you guys again for joining us today. Cool. Uh, we hope you enjoyed listening to about uh, quail management and, uh, and the working lands. <laughs> Sorry, just a little <laughs> internal goof on. Uh, look, I, <laughs> you know, I, I, I didn't update the, the, the <laughs> after our Tom curveballs. I, I I put deer management. It's like you wanted me to fail this deer time. Ma- no, I didn't. I didn't. I put deer management instead yeah. of quail management. So yeah, it's. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Tom. Uh, Sorry. Yeah. So we hope you enjoyed listening to all the things about quail and bringing quail back to New Jersey with John Park from New Jersey Audubon. Pre-show, we were saying how we can probably have ten conversations not with John and and New Jersey Audubon as a whole and a lot of our guests. So we're looking forward to to having them back on in the future. Uh, you can find even more about 
New Jersey Audubon and a lot of the projects they're doing by going to their website, which is www.njaudubon.org. Uh, make sure you like their Facebook page, which is NJ Audubon, um, or at NJ Audubon. Their Twitter is also at NJ Audubon, and Instagram, again, at NJ Audubon. So, <laughs> like I said, we're, we plan on having you back, John, because um, you cool. mentioned bog turtles in your your four species that are that are on yep. that program, and I know you guys have done some stuff with that as well. So, yep, it's yeah. uh, There's a lot of conversations oh, we yeah. want to have. We want to talk about riparian buffer bird habitat. There's there's yeah. there's a lot of things we want to talk about. So we're looking forward anytime. to that. Anytime, anytime. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'd like to give a big thank out to Stephen Marr for contributing our theme music. You can follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ. Instagram at Pinelands Nursery and YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. And let's not forget the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group. Man, it, it's, it exploded the last couple yeah. of days. Oh, yeah. uh, everyone really proud uh, and sharing what they've been doing on their own yeah. properties. A lot of, lot of uh, drought-tolerant garden picks and then a lot of, hey, thank God it finally rained yeah, picks. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> so make sure if you're not a member, become a member, and we'll keep the conversation yeah. going there. Yeah. You can listen to Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast directly at www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. You can also check us out at Podbean, Apple Podcasts. Leave a five-star review while you're there. Uh, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, YouTube, or you can even ask Alexa to play the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast. Thanks, everyone. I'm Tom. And I am Fran. John, thank you again. We appreciate it thank you so guys. much. Uh, anytime. And thanks again, everyone. We will see you again next time. Until then, keep it native. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.